And other times, you know, we'll jump in with both feet uh, because it's an amazing asset and we think that we can add a lot of value. Uh, but really from beginning, I think what, what sets us apart from a lot of other people in our field is that we're really there from beginning to end. And we make sure that we try to make it a seamless pro- process for our clients um, from beginning to end, from the day they sign a contract to the day they close. Um, and I think for the most part, we, we you know, we're successful. So uh, just a little bit about me and what I do. But thanks for having me. Thanks, Emily. <clears throat> yeah, if anybody in the audience wants to come up and introduce themselves, don't be scared or has any questions or anything like that. We're, uh, we're here to talk about commercial real estate syndication. Hey, guys, I had a quick question for you. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on solar and wind projects right now? What are you all seeing in the market? Because I have a lot of people approaching me, you know, asking if I have any you know leads on deals for that kind of stuff. And, and it's something, it's a space that I haven't really looked into that heavily yet. Steven, you're the uh, recycling guy do you have any thoughts on that because I, I i've never touched that space um yeah i mean i have a lot of experience in that not as much in the commercial real estate uh lately i think the price point is probably not quite there and i also think the location is going to be really important um so i think you know in places like austin texas and things like that it'll become much uh much more of a, a smart investment a lot sooner as the technology develops. Um, but I don't know if it, if it pencils out yet, to be honest. Is anybody else familiar with it? I'm not familiar with it. I'm kind of curious. Does that involve having some um, like credits as well? Do people do it also from like a, like a you know, credits perspective? Yeah, there are a lot of people that uh, get quite a significant amount of tax credits. Um, and one of the reasons I you know, was introduced to some of these people is there was uh, some people selling some of their tax credits, um, actually. So that, that they asked me that question, then that led into a bunch of other discussions. So, um, you know, as far as that goes, you know, it's just a space that's been hot on the radar around the like areas of Sweetwater, Texas is one of the places that they're really looking to put a lot of wind farms and solar, uh, you know, stuff, things of that nature. So I don't remember her name, Ben, but we were in a room with her yesterday in the last couple of days. She said she just leased out a bunch of land for that. Do you remember who I'm talking about? She also owns the manufacturing company. Not, not. Okay. All right. Paul, Paul, you want to chime in? Yeah, so that's where we've had luck. Uh, we did a 80,000 square foot roof lease uh, to a solar company, and uh, we have a project right now where we're going to be leasing 18 acres uh, to a uh, solar company where they're going to develop a farm. Uh, they've got eight uh, projects that they're looking to develop, large projects. Our, our project's going to be a five megawatt project. Uh, but we're doing a strict land lease. Uh, but their model is to, you know, develop eight or ten of them and then roll them all to a, a hedge fund or larger investor. Uh, and they syndicate the tax credits just like a uh, affordable housing uh, type deal. Uh, you know, so the financing for the project itself is just like financing, you know, an affordable project or you know a tax credit deal. Um, but uh, again, I'm not in that business. Uh, but, uh, I sure will take, uh, rent on inventory land and we're actually going to go make offers on a couple other pieces, 
where we can be the landlord uh, for his future farms. That's awesome, Paul. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about um, the future. You know, I mentioned that we're very bullish on uh, suburban office buildings, and I talked about that a little bit. Is anybody else on the stage uh, want to share some thoughts on where the where the opportunity is? What what are you wanting to invest in? Uh, you know, this year. I can um, speak for myself personally, actually, um, it's because um, from a personal perspective, I'm in a position now for various reasons, having exited some active investments and um, some other things where I'm now able to actually be an investor. Um, So I find myself like in this position and even though, you know, we have the syndications in my firm. And I have a lot of things covered. I'm really interested in understanding other asset classes. And what I really appreciated, I can't remember, Paul, if you said this, but you mentioned a risk-adjusted cap rate. And I think it's so important that those two words, risk-adjusted to everything. Um, As I look at my uh, portfolio that I want to build this year, I'm interested in understanding um, these different asset classes because personally, I think it's important to diversify. And I think one of the best things about the way that real estate has become more accessible to more people over the years, I was involved in real estate crowdfunding, kind of Mm -hmm. launching it in the early days. So a lot has changed and we all have access to more. So I really like the idea of diversifying across geographies, strategies, asset classes to really build as diversified a portfolio of cash flowing investments as I can. So Ben, you know, I've invested with you and plan to do it more because I didn't know anything about office. And if you read the headlines, you get doomsday, right? Everybody also got doomsday headlines around, um, uh, multifamily rents. We got all these doomsday headlines, but the truth is, is that it's so specific, right? Suburban office, um, uh, you know, self-storage in certain markets, mobile homes. So personally, and this is just more of a comment, um, like I like the idea of having that diversification the same way I would diversify, um, you know, my 401k with the same ETFs. Yeah, Adapia, you're, you're spot on. I mean, I guess in the last month alone, going back to my barbell strategy, uh, you know, the one side, of course, was these boring industrial properties. So I'm going to get a monthly dividend based off of a 7%. And uh, a lot of these properties don't pay it back end, but I call that this gives you a 20% bump. So not a 20 IRR, but say on 100K, you get an extra 20K upon sale, which is nice. Uh, flip side, what I learned here in Texas is mineral rights. So, you know, God bless uh, Texas, as they say. Uh, even if you sell your land, you still own your mineral rights. Uh, it's actually considered real estate for purposes of investing and syndicating. These can be really attractive. I've seen IRRs, you know, from the 20s to the 50s, depending who's managing it. So, uh, you know, I had a great coffee uh, with Chris Bentley, and I decided, yeah, this, you know, to your point, Adapia, in terms of really diversifying across the board, this is something brand new, but it's tried and tested, and you know, could be that, you know, 20, 30, 40 IRR in a few years. So that's just uh, two things I've looked at in the last week or so. 
and that ties directly to Ben's comment before about, you know, hey, why would you want that low five cap multifamily? Because you need a little bit of that in your portfolio too. You know, so there is a lot of value to the asset class diversification as well as geographic diversification. Hey, Paul, can you ask your son, Nick, to uh, mute himself because he, <laughs> he's a millennial. I, yeah. I, I, I texted him, oh, he heard it. <laughs> uh, I, I'd have one thing there, Ben. I would say, or Paul, I would say that, um, you know, I agree with everything everyone just said, but it's funny because I've seen a lot of my clients in the last, let's call it six to eight months, who, you know, as soon as the, the shock of, you know, what, what happened in March and April and May of last year kind of wore off, and you kind of saw what happened in different markets, right? I had a few clients who turned around and said, listen, we want to be ready and poised to, to kind of jump when, uh, you know, when we have the ability to. And now if you look at it, for example, my, my firm just put out reports on what happened in the five bars of New York City last, last the end of last year and, and the year-end results. But if you look at the numbers, right, there are, there are obviously significantly less trades and significantly less sales and, and, and deals that were sold. But at the same time, there are, you know, what we see on the internal side is we see a significant, a significant increase in um, borrowers or, or would-be borrowers um, or owners who are saying, listen, well, what I want to do is I want to capitalize on this right now because, you know, before New York City was a three-cap market or a four-cap market um, in certain situations. And now you can pick up properties in, again, in New York City for, and I'm just talking because it's close to home, but I'm sure that the same theory works around the country. But, you know, now you can pick up properties here for, you know, they're going up to a six cap in certain areas like the Bronx. So, you know, to turn around and say, now's the time to pick up a six cap because in, you know, whether it's one year, five years, 10 years down the road, whatever the long play is, that, you know, something like New York City will rebound. Who knows how long it'll take, but it will definitely rebound or rebound. And then it's just a matter of, you know, making sure I have the ability to hold on to it long enough to see that upside. So, you know, Asset classes, I guess my point is that asset classes that people typically weren't looking at a year and a half ago, now they are because, you know, in certain areas they can, they can, it's almost like that, you know, buying something and then putting in the work, really the work here is just keeping it afloat until the market stabilizes again. It goes back to where it was whenever that, you know, however long that may be. So that's, that's definitely a, a, a trend that we're seeing here. And I'm sure if you found the right marketplace, that, that trend follows and, and copies over to other marketplaces around the country. Thank you, Elliot. That was awesome. Uh, Nick, Hakeem, Paul's son, uh, why don't you uh, introduce yourself? Um, tell us a little bit about what you do. Sure. Thanks for having me. And sorry, I wasn't on mute when I first came into the room here. Um, so my name is Nick Hakeem. I'm based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. I actually just moved down here about a week and a half ago from uh, Ellie's North neck of the woods up in uh, New York City, uh, originally from upstate New York. It's okay, Nick, um, you're the smart and, one. You left. Yeah. <laughs> and I run a company called Pioneer Communities, and uh, what we do is we buy uh, value-add uh, and stabilized mobile home parks, uh, primarily in the southeast. Uh, we're looking for deals uh, that are larger than 100 units generally that have some sort of value-add component. Um and we're in the business of just owning and operating these assets. We currently have a portfolio of about 400 units across three uh, three parks and in contract to purchase about two more right now and uh, looking to grow the portfolio to a few thousand units over the next uh, few years. 
Nick, can you tell uh, can you talk a little bit about the cap rates that you guys are closing deals at, and then also I would love just personally to know what what your strategy has been with raising capital. So the cap rates that we're closing deals at right now are much different than the cap rates were when we first got into the business about eighteen months ago. Um, so the cap rate uh, we we acquired our first deal at was uh, right around an eight. Um, and our most recent acquisition was up in Huntsville, Alabama, 173 units, you know, an institutional quality asset and, um, you know, on in place numbers, uh, it was like a four and three quarter cap. Um, but we'll be able to build that, you know, our, our goal with these assets is to be able to build to a double digit cash on cash within 18 months of, of ownership. Um, and you know our, our investors love the asset class for a number of reasons. <clears throat> number one, depreciation. Uh, number two, being that you know there's just the simple supply demand imbalance uh, that mobile home parks uh, offer. Um, you know there's a diminishing supply of mobile home parks across the country every year, um, and obviously an increasing demand for an affordable housing product. Um, they also just love the. The sort of downside protection that they provide, you know, in an up market, everyone needs an affordable place to live, and in a down market, uh, this, the same is true. So, um, really provides, you know, risk-adjusted, stabilized returns, um, and it's a great asset class that, you know, most investors want to own uh, a small piece of. Um, so we've we've syndicated our first three investments just amongst friends, families, uh, and some high net worth individuals. Um, but we do have relationships with several larger sort of institutional or family office clients. Um, and, you know, we're, we're out looking for the right opportunities to acquire uh, parks with them. But the, the issue we face in, in our business is, uh, I think most operators face, is it's a tough uh, it's a tough business to create scale in. Uh, you know, most family offices or institutional clients don't want to write a check less than five or ten million dollars and you know our, our average deal size is somewhere between five and ten um so again it's it's just a very difficult asset class to deploy a lot of capital very quickly um so what our strategy is really focused on is aggregating you know the largest portfolio that we can so that we can take advantage of that cap rate compression that that happens when you know, you, you ultimately exit the portfolio to one of these larger clients that's, you know, doesn't want to do the legwork of, of building the portfolio. That's great, man. And if uh, you need more, if you need more money, or if you want to help raise the money, let me know. I'll, I'll definitely, when, when you get to that point on your next deal, let me know. Let's yeah, connect. I appreciate that. Thanks I, I invest with you. I, I think you guys have put together a great team. Thanks very hey. much. Hey, Ben and Nick and anybody else, Paul, anybody else who, who raises money here, um, is there a, a difference when trying to bring in, um, uh, I guess, foreign investors? I have a meeting tomorrow um, with a couple of people who uh, may want to bring in money, and, and most of that is from abroad. And is there a different process um, for you guys, uh, for the sake of your syndications, if, if the money is, is domestic or foreign? Uh, Paul, can I point at you to see if you have any thoughts on it? I have some thoughts, or if anybody else does, but I... Paul's yeah, there, there are, there's specific legislation around that and a process to bring in uh, foreign capital. 
uh, there, but there are incentives also. Uh, I, I dealt with uh, Jim Small on a uh, foreign investment, and there, there was a lot of legwork and a lot of paperwork involved uh, with that. And then conversely, some of these investors are coming into his deals here and uh, maybe may uh, oh, may a little onerous unless you're prepared. So uh, I can probably point you in the right direction offline there, Dan. And congratulations on taking uh, CCIM 101 last week. Thank you. Thank you. And Paul, I'll connect with you offline. I appreciate it. Hey, Dan, on a related point, uh, this is kind of my, my daily PSA for everybody. I'm sure most folks on the call know, but just to be aware, when you're raising money, um, it can come from your investors' retirement accounts. And I also want to share, as a lot of folks have moved, so I'm sure folks know the SDIRA, as folks have become familiar um, with something also called the Solo 401k, also known as the EQRP, Individual 401k, this is real powerful for anybody that's 1099 or maybe that's pushed into self-employment, you can actually contribute over 50K a year. Uh, so I've personally used my SDIRA and solo 401k in about 10 plus investments. And I found that syndicators that do that raise about 20% of their funds from uh, these self-directed accounts. So I've been fortunate to learn a lot about this space. So if anybody wants to chat offline with me, uh, please reach out. And, and I've learned a lot from Dan about, um, Rocket Dollar, and so which is a you know a accommodator of the self-directed IRAs, and through that connection, I've I've made investments also with my SCIRA. Dan's also done it as well, and we've we've been able to really turn a lot of people on to Rocket Dollar. So shout out on that. Anybody else have any th any thoughts on uh, any of the above? And if not. Um, David at the bottom, join the room. We'll go, David, why don't you introduce yourself, Darren next, and then August after that. Hey, what's up, guys? I'm David. I'm not really a syndicator. Well, I'm not a, I haven't done any syndications yet, but I, I, do, I am investing in commercial properties. So that's kind of, I was interested in this room and hearing what the syndicators are doing in commercial properties. Right now I have like two commercial buildings and I'm under contract for a third um, that I'm working on, but it's all just uh, JV stuff not actually doing syndication on it but i kind of think that i see the opportunity in the good commercial retail like the grocery anchored the internet resistant the covid resistant type stuff that like these are good assets and the cap rates you know went up on them because the lending's not really there anymore like you can't really get the cmbs and the life co loans that you could before but i have to think that it's coming back you know, those lending products aren't going to be gone forever. And when they do, cap rate is going to go back down. So that's why I said I'm normally in multifamily, but I'm kind of shifting more towards commercial because of everyone wants to buy multifamily right now. And I think the opportunity is the other way. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Anybody have any questions or we can move on to Darren? I have a quick question. There you go. Do you think that um, a lot of this stuff is going to change with new administration? I know that there's talk about elimination of the 1031 exchange. Uh, anybody else have thoughts on anything else major that's going to change? I kind of doubt they would do away with the 1031 exchange. But even if they did, how would that hurt syndication? You can't use the 1031 exchange 
in a syndication deal anyways, right? Uh, that That's not accurate. You you can 1031 yeah. into a syndication using the tenant common structure. Yeah, I thought you could, yeah. Okay. But, yeah. Okay. Um, my, I think for commercial properties, not, not necessarily office, but industrial, uh, we've seen a little bit of an effect um, of potential changes with the income administration, specifically the potential for a, a $15 minimum wage. We own a class B, C industrial building in Greenville, South Carolina. It's about 100,000 square feet, and we've got... 60% vacancy there. We bought it at 0% vacancy or occupancy. And um, the issue we're seeing there is that a lot of these smaller industrial users are sort of patiently waiting it out to see if this $15 minimum wage is, is going to be implemented because that's that's really going to affect their, their business. You know, warehouse workers on the ground, um, anybody that's working in sort of their fulfillment centers or light manufacturing, um, that could have a big impact on their business and expansion plans for people that are occupying these B and C industrial spaces, um, you know, are, are, are sort of on hold until they figure that out. Hey, Nick, how, how old are you? I'm 28. 28 everybody if you don't know nick if you don't know anybody else on the stage or around you follow them not only in clubhouse but also offline uh really just paul for everybody else that's new the way that this app works is you got to connect your instagram so that um people can connect with you and send you a dm through instagram there isn't actually any uh, dming right now through clubhouse so make sure you update your profile paul you need to put a picture up there brother and uh, yeah, you'll get to connect with incredible people like everybody else on stage. So just wanted to, to shout out that. Darren's been waiting patiently. Darren, would you mind uh, introducing yourself? Happy to. Thank you, Stephen and Benjamin, for convening this room. My name is Darren Krakowiak. I'm based in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, I come at things from the commercial real estate service side. So I spent 20 years working um, for various firms uh, in Asia Pacific. So um, I've spent 11 years in Seoul, Korea, um, working for CBRE and JLL. Um, been back in Australia for a couple of years. And um, where I come at things from now is helping people who work um, on the service provider side uh, become better at their jobs. So doing things like helping them with deal flow, um, time management, you know, becoming more energised. And uh, I guess I joined Clubhouse a couple of weeks ago so I can speak to um, people in the commercial real estate sector here in Asia Pacific, but also in North America. Um, I don't do really much in, in Europe um, about those topics, but also so I can learn what's important and what people in the industry are talking about. So the opportunity to be in this room today to learn more about, you know, what people are talking about on this indication side is very helpful for me because I think syndication, um, at least in Australia, has become a little bit squeezed. Um, certainly there's more high net worth individuals who are doing things on their own that are pushing up. And then there are institutions that are investing in um, some, I guess, lower price product, which is pushing down. So there's a bit of a squeeze there. Um, so that's what I'm about. Thank you. All right, brother. Thanks for coming uh, from down under. Um, yeah, August, uh, you're up next. And then let me just plant the seed, y'all. I got to split. I got a call in six minutes. 
Uh, keep the room going, Steve and Dan, Daniel, Adipia, Paula. You guys just keep the conversation going after that. But uh, yeah, August, you're up. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Benjamin. We connected on um, LinkedIn after connecting on this platform. So that shows you, um, you know, the benefits of um, Clubhouse. Um, we are a Canadian-based investment firm that focuses on investing in um, U.S. multifamily assets. Um, uh, that's a bit about our, our, our company. I, there, were, there was a certain discussion about international investors, and I want to just kind of uh, put uh, give you guys my input on that. Uh, obviously to give you the disclaimer, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an accountant, so definitely uh, get some more information. But the, the U.S. is a very business-friendly uh, country, allows a lot of foreign investments to come in there. Obviously, for reasons of uh, terrorism and money laundry, you got to see what is the country that's, uh, that the investor coming from what country that's uh, looking to invest. Obviously, there's an issue with certain countries and, and the U.S., um, but countries like Canada, there's a treaty between Canada and the U.S. that uh, allows the process to be streamlined. Canadian investors, uh, I'm talking about as far as LP investors, can invest in the U.S., um, and uh, the process is very easy. They can also be relieved from double taxation. Uh, currently, the process that's in place that a lot of syndicators use to bring in Canadian LP investors into their deals is not beneficial to the Canadian investor because they require the Canadian investor to uh, incorporate a U.S. entity like an LLC or a C-Corp, and the investor invests through that entity in their deal. But then uh, when the investor is paid out um, and those funds, need to, uh, the, the investor has to end up paying taxes on those funds in the U.S., and eventually when those funds come to come back to Canada, um, the, the investor has to pay taxes in Canada as well. Uh, but there's ways around that through limited partnerships and, and a web of corporations that allows the Canadian investor to, to get back um, uh, their original investment and any profits they've made and be relieved from double taxation. So that's just uh, quick items there. And I think it was another topic that I wanted to touch on uh, that we, oh, and as far as the 1031 exchange, just for me to, for me to uh, understand that David brought up the point. So, so as syndicators, we, we obviously we, we earn a living by charging fees and the performance of the asset on the, uh, on the back end uh, profits uh, and anything if we're paying preferred returns or what have you uh, as syndicators, if we're, syndicated project and then exiting it and some groups have uh, fees where it's a disposition fee or, uh, or a portion of the lift that has been uh, made on the project if, if, if there are such fees in place how does the profit then gets rolled over into, into another project but I, I was under the impression that that project is, is done with so the tender 1031 exchange can't be used for that set of investors and group to then be rolled over into a different project if somebody can explain that i would appreciate it Uh, Paul, you want to chime in? I got to hop on a call in three minutes. But basically, uh, in the U.S., um, to for someone to ten thirty one into a syndication, they're going to. And again, I'm not a lawyer or a CPA. Um, they're going to. We're going to utilize something called a tenant in common structure, which basically is that you're. Let's say you're the ten thirty one coming in. You're going to be side by side uh, with the LLC that is buying. The, that's the syndication basically and so that means that your name is on the deed and so i think what you're asking about is well, what happens on the exit well exit yeah gonna true. happen yeah sending yeah yeah you're upon the exit uh that tick is going to get broken up and then at that point you're free to go whichever way you want with your 1031 after that because um you're you're still an intact 
uh, entity on your own. It just happens to be outside of the partnership. So did that answer answer the question? Awesome. And you can do that and you can structure that a lot of different ways in the tick agreement because there will be an underlying agreement spelling out the relationship between the two entities that are listed on the deed. And after at least, I'd say, two tax cycles, you can do what's called collapse the tick, where you can then be absorbed into the other entity. So it makes the reporting a little bit easier. That's well, awesome. I just, I, I, I just learned something new. Paul, maybe uh, elaborate a little bit about that. I've never heard about collapsing the tick. What does that? What does it take to do that? And what is two tax cycles? Is that two years? Yes. Yeah. So you know the the ownership and the IRS is going to look at that again. I am not an accountant. Um, I like to push my accountant, uh, but the IRS is going to look at what the intent was at the point of uh, performing the exchange. Uh, so at that point, you're going into that. Uh, investment. So they look at it as two tax cycles. Um, so I, I call it two direct tax filings. Uh, you know, you at that point prove that your intent was not just to avoid the taxes, it was to go into the investment. Um, you know, same rule would apply to you get a lot of people who have, let's call it a million dollars worth of equity, no debt moving forward into a new $1 million property. So they're effectively paying cash for that property. And then they might try to do a cash out refinance. Again, uh, IRS would frown upon that. And, you know, you'd want to wait at least two tax cycles before loading any debt and leveraging uh, that property. Um, But, you know, outside of 1031 exchange, there's other forms of ownership that when you need to contemplate when you go into the property. Um, we're buying property in land trusts now, okay? So a trust actually owns the property. There is no tax. There's only tax if the money is distributed. So you can fluidly go in and out of uh, projects. Uh, we're also starting to leverage on some deals, um, uh, deferred sales trusts. And uh, there's a couple large, if you uh, Google deferred sales trust, you'll find a couple large firms um that are performing these and it gives you a lot of flexibility and that's going to be our go-to replacement for 1031 exchanges uh if 1031 exchanges go away you know so there's there's always a way um but you know just like you make your money uh when you go into a deal uh not when you exit the deal uh you know you need to structure it properly when you're going into the deal and you know that 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 structuring um you know is all part of your business plan you know and you know where you're going to be and uh you know what you expect the property to perform and when your exit's going to be hope that didn't confuse you but and help but uh there's a lot of research to do on your way into the deal uh besides financial due and physical due diligence so if, if I can ask a question, and then thank you for dropping all this knowledge, it's really helpful. If a bunch of people are in a partnership in the deal and it sells, can they 1031 exchange? No, because they were in an LLC that's being dissolved, right? It's only if they came in separate and they exit separate. Is that what you're saying? 
So there is a way for you to break an LLC up. Again, you've got to do it multiple tax cycles before the anticipated sale. But we've done it where we've taken three owners in an LLC, uh, made us on the deed three tenant in common owners, um, reported it uh, not through a K-1, but broke it up as uh, individual listings on a schedule on our tax returns, again, for multiple tax cycles. And then I was able to 1031 out uh, and the other two people paid tax. Oh, that's very interesting. And that's possible. Thank you. So if, uh, you know, any of you are licensed real estate professionals, uh, you know, I, I really would advise getting to um, some national marketing meetings. Uh, there's regional ones. There's a great group in Kentucky. There's a great one in Ohio. I know there's a Texas group. Um, there's a national group called the uh, NCE, National uh, Council of Exchangers. Uh, and, uh, that anybody can go to as long as you're licensed. And, uh, I am a member, uh, of the society of exchange counselors, uh, which is an invitation only, uh, investment group, um, of brokers and principals from across the country. Um, but when you go to these meetings, uh, even on zoom, uh, NCE's got zoom access, uh, you'll learn a lot. You know, they talk about self-directed IRA investing, all these different types of exchanges. Uh, you know, you typically get about 100 people in the room talking about their deals, uh, looking for help, looking for investors, uh, looking for partners, uh, and, you know, sharing uh, this type of uh, help uh, on specific deals. So uh, I would definitely reach out and try to find those. I know Ben... Stephen, Daniel, my son Nicholas, uh, Ellie, uh, I don't know who else is on here, but you know they frequent and have been invited to the Society of Exchange Counselors meetings. Um, but uh, NCE is also a great venue and uh, you can get listings and see product from across the country from a lot of smart, like-minded investors. Yeah, I just wanna piggyback off of that and just say it's been life-changing, you know, being a part of those organizations and the amount of value that you can derive from that is incredible. Uh, you know, the first time you go, it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose, but you pick up on stuff really quickly. And the people in that room are just so freaking creative. It's incredible uh, the kind of deal structures that they do. And also the relationships that you can build from that is is something that I've never experienced before. So I highly recommend that. All right, uh, just because I think Ben uh, is on another meeting, I think Fahad's the next person up on stage that hasn't introduced himself yet. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, I'm actually doing a syndication as we speak right now. Uh, I'm a land developer based in New York City. I build uh, ground-up residential uh, buildings, and we, we syndicate through 506C. Um, I look forward to answering questions and also learning a lot from you guys. Thanks for having me. All right. All right.
Yeah, who's next that hasn't introduced themselves Wait, or wants to talk? Yeah, can we go back to Fahad for a second? Fahad, I've got 400 acres up in Ulster County, New York for sale. Uh, oh, wow. This is looking for a great developer. Uh, the Hudson Valley's on fire just a little bit north of you, so reach out. We'll, we'll talk. I've been, I've been hearing about yeah. it, actually. Yeah, sorry. I had to throw that in that commercial in there. <sighs> All right. Any questions for Fahad and uh, people in the audience? If if you want to introduce yourself, please raise your hand. Yeah, don't be shy. I'm going to jump in with a question um, for Paul. Um, talking about you go into a property with uh, three partners and you own it a couple years, two tax cycles, you drop down the title to the tenants in common. That's that's not a syndication, correct? I mean, I, that's what I do all the time, but and I, I do not believe I'm doing syndications, but I'd love for somebody to tell me if I, in fact, am doing syndications, and then tell me the benefits of doing a syndication versus I grab Stephen and I say, Stephen, I've got a $2 million Taco Bell in Houston. Let's go buy it together. I don't need to do a syndication, do I? Uh, syndication, I, I consider something where you're going to do an actual formal offering document and solicit people to come into your deal. And, you know, you are the lead. Uh, a lot of what I do and, uh, you know, mind you, about 80 plus percent of my business is done through the Society of Exchange Counselors with the other members and investors. Um, you know, we come together as partners. That's that's different. We're not soliciting each other. We're teaming up. Uh, but, you know, if I was out and uh, said, hey, I'm buying this building and, you know, I'm going to offer you, uh, you know, 6% preferred return and, you know, 50% ownership or whatever the numbers are or the structure is, and I am the sponsor uh, that's when I think you cross the, the syndication threshold, uh, in my mind. Uh, you know, either way, you've got to have the right agreements and relationships between the people, but I guess it's the level of uh, offering document and how the people are being solicited, uh, which draws the line on those thresholds. The other piece was with the unwinding, you know, of the LLC. That's not a really a in, anything to do with syndicating. Uh, that's just a way to break up a partnership, and you know, give partners potentially a path out of their relationship. I think it also depends on how you're raising and and who you're raising from, and and probably the amount also. Um, you might need a syndication just the way you're doing it. So it kind of depends on the deal, I think, also. And, and again, who you're getting money from. And in a scenario, you could be three people come together, you know, start the deal and you turn into the sponsors because you need to go raise a couple million bucks to complete the deal or bring the deal to the next level. If you guys are interested, I'll give you a case study of the deal I'm doing now. I have it in front of me, so so it'll give you a little bit of how I syndicate it. Yo, it's here. 
All right. So again, I, I do land developments in, in New York City, and, and it's a roughly a $10 million total deal. That's going to be the value of it. Uh, raising about a million dollars through a 506C to start the project. And I typically just acquire on hard money. And then I uh, pull out a construction loan after the foundation is laid. Um, so basically, that money comes in. We take out our management fees. And, and, and again, the way I'm raising, I'm raising kind of publicly, but a lot of it's word of mouth. But regardless of what it is, I, I know I need a filing because it, it's still technically a security. So I do it under a 506C public solicitation, raise about a million dollars. Investors make their returns at the end of two years once the development stabilized. Um, the reason I, I do it as a syndication is, again, because I'm raising publicly and I, I don't want to run into like uh, selling securities without a license or any issues like that. And I'll just add, too, for anyone who um, isn't familiar with 506C uh, versus, let's say, a 506B, because that's in the realm of a private placement. Uh, and the reason that Fahad can even speak about his deal is because he is raising under a 506C, um, whereas most people, I think like 80% of private placements are under 506B. And so you can't solicit, you can't specifically market your deal but you can take up to 35 non-accredited investors, which is a pretty big deal, um, especially if you want to raise capital from um, from people who, who don't fit that bill. So there's there's some differences, there's some pros and cons to the to the B and to the C, um, and these these are technicalities within the realm of the of the private placement, um, which is still overseen by the SEC. So there's nuances if you're starting to raise capital from. Um, you know, from a group of investors, which is the most basic form of, you know, the definition of syndication, then you want to look into that so that you're also, um, you know, doing it appropriately and making sure that your investors capital is, um, is safe uh, from from this very important legal and securities perspective. Yeah, I'll give you guys a secret also, by the way, so you can you can raise from non accredited investors, because you could do a concurrent offering. And the way I did it the first time is because I wanted to publicly raise funds, but I also wanted to be able to. I also wanted to be able to get non-accredited. Um, I did a concurrent filing with the regulation CF4A6. That's the crowdfunding rules, and I was able to get a million dollars, and I think it's a million seventy this year. It's supposed to go up to five million, but Biden's administration is really about it. So um, right now it's a million seventy. You can raise up to a million seventy from non-accredited. And as long as you disclose it in your offering memorandum and prospectus and all of that stuff, you can concurrently raise from a credit with the 506C. So it's an option for people looking for both and without going the full. Hey, I accidentally just disconnected from my room, oh. so I have to go. How do I join? I don't, I mean, I don't think you'd like it, to be honest. They're talking about real estate stuff, but uh, I'll send you a link. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye-bye.
how much does it cost to modify you're, it? Into the- yeah, I'm, 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 honestly, 99% of it's reusable. The only thing I really change in my reoccurring documents is probably the size the of the offering and, and obviously the company name, right? But since I'm just doing development, they're just pretty uniform um, across across it, right? Just just really the, the size of the offering changes and, and obviously the, the company name that you're raising under. So realistically, an attorney, I, I spend maybe anywhere from five to 10 grand on legal fees for every fund now. Right. So that that's, uh, you know, eyes wide open, you know, spend the big money up front and make sure that you are protected as a sponsor. <laughs> Rule number one. A hundred percent, because all your disclosures are there. And, and if you forget to disclose any, I'll give you an example. My PPM, I think like right on top says, be prepared to lose all your money, right? Like you need to disclose everything to your investors in that. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's all about disclosure. Yeah. And along with that too, when we're talking about raising capital from any kind of investor, um, you need to earn their trust. And so the disclosures are like, let's say, a forced legal way to do it. And, and you know, I love how you say it's like right up, right up top, like prepare to lose it all. Um, it's just really important, especially if you're raising from, from people who aren't familiar with, uh, with real estate. Because a lot, a lot of us, I mean, in my firm too, like a lot of our investors, they are, they are not real estate experts in any way, shape or form. So you have to be really prepared to educate them and to, to really be prepared to, um, to disclose all those risks so that they understand what they're getting themselves into a, cause it's the right thing to do. And B cause it'll save you a lot of headaches down the road when, you know, something is not going to go according to pro forma, which is going to be hundred percent of the time. Um, so really important to keep that in mind when, when raising capital. Yes, and be honest on all of those potential pitfalls. Uh, I was involved, we launched a mutual fund in 96, 97 uh, with State Street Bank. And um, I had a front row seat for prosecuting that in front of the SEC, uh, uh, getting, getting the approval. And we were arguing on some points on it. And, you know, the examiner looked at me and said, Paul, you know, you can steal from people, just disclose it in the in the offering document. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it's like, hey, you know, just disclose everything uh, and you're covered. Right. Don't don't try to whittle back the disclosures, you know, thinking, oh, that can't happen. That's a great point. Yeah. While we're on the subject and we have some really experienced indicators here. Um, let's hear about a time that, uh, you did lose money or, or even the, the, the most you've lost through syndication as a, a GP and, and kind of what the fallout was, um, protected or not. Well, I can speak to, um, not from a, from, not from a GP perspective, but, um, this is, uh, we always say like this is the worst performing deal um, that Alpha Investing has um, has had to date. So this in this particular deal, which was a multifamily, it was before it was before my time. So I know the ins and outs um, to a T. But basically, we got all of our investor capital back at year three instead of year five. Um, so like our firm has never lost investor capital. But when I have investor calls, I always say, hey, like we have here's our full track record. It's you know, it's going to be in your resources document uh, or your resources um, center. Um, and you're going to see this big goose egg on this one um, because, you know, essentially what happened is 
this was an, a this was a multifamily deal where the um, the business plan involved a refi, and for various reasons, um, you know, underestimating of construction costs, overestimating of um, of uh, future rents. Basically, the sponsor ran out of money, and the lender just would not you know, just wouldn't work with them anymore. So the refi didn't happen. And on top of it, they ran out of money and it was this whole big problem. And so we negotiated our way out and got our, all of our investor capital back. Um, so that was one thing that that would be like our worst performing deal. Um, and that's what happened in that situation, which actually changed a lot of the way that we underwrite sponsors um, and the, the level of due diligence and also the amount of experience that we require from our sponsor at the level that we're operating. Great. Uh, does anybody else uh, up here have any any uh, stories of the sort? Ellie, do you have anything from the lender side? Um, with regards to what specifically? I mean, obviously, lenders don't really syndicate. Um, they do participate. So, um, and with what respect are you asking? Well, so I know you guys have lent in as the, the institution on, on syndications, correct? Um, do you have any instances where the syndications weren't working out and maybe as a lender, you were able to work with them, um, and help, you know, move that forward? So I I would say this, I mean, I've, I've done work with a lot of clients who syndicate deals, um, I think the best way to put it there are a lot of blenders out there who are okay with syndications and have no problems with it and on the opposite side of the coin there are a lot of blenders out there who don't know the first thing about a tick um and that becomes very difficult because if you don't tell them up front that you will possibly be structuring a syndicated deal uh meaning you you go ahead you find the lender who's going to do your deal they give you great terms you sign a term sheet you start the project and then you call them two weeks later and say hey i had someone come in and bring me an investor an investor come, but they're coming in with a tick. If you don't tell them them up front that that's a possibility, that can very quickly derail your deal um, and put you in a position where you now are under the gun with a contract and now have to find a new lender because not all lenders know how to do that um, or allow you to do that. Right? Some don't even touch syndicated deals. So I guess my, from a lender's perspective, my suggestion and my my, uh, my tidbit or whatever you want to call it would be. Just make sure going in up front that if you're going to be syndicating a deal and you're going to be working with a lender, that they know that the deal is syndicated. Um, at the end of the day, they're going to figure it out. It's not like hiding it really does anybody any good. Um, it'll just save you a lot of heartache later on, or it can be a non-issue, but it's definitely worth mentioning up front. Um, and I did a deal once with a client who was syndicating a deal. And not only that, but on the back end, the bank was participating it out. Um, and had we not told them up front, it wasn't that bank who had an issue, but they came to us in the, towards the end and said, hey, listen, one of our participants just realized it's syndicated and they don't do syndicated deals. And our, my response to them was, listen, you knew from day one that this was a syndicated deal. Um, and that even at that one, we actually knew up front that there was going to be a tenants in common someone coming in with 1031 money. So we were able to tell them that right up front. So... You know, we were very easily, we were very quickly able to pivot and have that conversation out um, when they first came on board versus waiting till it was closing and then that lender realizing. So long story short, we were able to find another participant who had no problem with the fact that it was syndicated, 
But had we not mentioned that up front, had we not known that up front, we would have got the closing a week before after waiting, you know, six weeks of doing six weeks of work to find out that we now have to wait another, who knows how long, just to find another participant and fill out that piece. So that's probably my biggest, uh, you know, piece of advice when we're doing syndicated deals and working with lenders is just be upfront about it, you know, from the get-go. It'll save yourself a lot of time and heartache later on. Well, and that's going to be directly correlated to the size of the deal and the institution that you're working on. You know, if you're with a community bank or a bank bank, um, you know, they're regulated. You know, a lot of the smaller banks are going to require that anybody with an ownership stake of 20% more, 15% or more, uh, are going to sign personally for recourse on the debt. Uh, but you know, with the syndications that gets a little bit harder and, you know, they're going to want to be able to sink their teeth into somebody liquid. Right. No, definitely hundred percent. It comes down to, at the end of the day, the ownership as well, right? If that person coming in, who's now uh, a partner ends up being more than 20% or even in certain situations, certain situations where there's no owners over 20%, um, and the, the highest owner, even if it's yourself, is only 10 or 15%. And now you have another syndicator, another party involved who's now also 10 or 15% that you fall into the same issue there. So definitely something to keep in mind. Yeah, I'll just say one one last thing really quick. And then um, I'm also going to, I need to leave because I have um, another meeting is for anyone who is raising capital, the the lender is a key. When we When we're underwriting our sponsors, um, we're, we actually go in and vet their lender relationships. Um, it's such an important part of the deal structure, which I'm sure, you know, a lot of everyone here that does real estate investing, um, understands that, but especially if you're going to get into syndication, um, that it's a huge, huge piece. Like you said, um, um, Elliot's that, you know, some lenders won't even touch it. So, so it's like, you really have to get, you have to get your lender locked in in order to, to make a deal, um, really get to where you want it to go. So, you know, bottom line, lenders are extremely important. Find, find the right one. Um, so with that, I just want to say thank you to everyone for, um, you know, bringing me up on stage and for this incredible conversation, um, amazing room. And I look forward to connecting with everyone on other platforms and um, wishing you all a wonderful rest of your day. Yeah, thank you so much for being a part of this. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. My nice pleasure. meeting you. My pleasure. Take care. Hey, guys. Uh, likewise, had an off. Happy to chat on uh, Texas Niche Real Estate or SDIRAs. Uh, LinkedIn is probably best. Uh, I might be the only Dan Krasinowski. So <laughs> look forward to talking with you all. Thanks, Dan. Uh, before we wrap care, up, man. Barrett's been on here patiently waiting. I want to give him a chance to uh, introduce himself. Barrett, how you doing? Uh, hi, everybody. Um, thanks for pulling me up and uh, allowing me to ask a question. My question is particularly for Fahad. Uh, can you flesh out that first deal you did a little bit better? You mentioned that you used hard money to get it financed after you did your initial crowdfunding raise. And uh, that sort of piqued my curiosity a little bit. Yeah, I mean, ground-up developments are a little unique uh, in that, especially right now, right? It's very hard to get funding for a ground-up development. I'm hoping, Ali, you can help you with that. Um, but but basically, the way I, I typically buy deals, um, because the I think the terms I was able to get at the time was like 65% of project size, right? So that was a $10 million project. 
So I would have to raise four and a half million dollars, right? I was 20 years old when I started real estate. So uh, it, it probably wasn't going to happen. So instead of doing that, I closed the property on hard money. It was a 1.5 purchase. Because it appraised, I was able to get about 75% of that value. Um, so I raised about 800000 for that deal, which was a lot more stomachable. And then once I laid the foundation, it's a lot easier to refi on a construction loan, which while throwing in some contingencies and buffers, and that kind of held me through the through the whole deal. So it's not the way most people do development, but that's kind of how I do development because it keeps my capital required, my equity required minimal. And that also boosts up my returns because, I mean, I think the last deal, it was a 60% return in a two-year deal. So um, the only reason I get those numbers because I'm not raising 45% of the deal. I'm only raising, you know, 10 to 15% of the deal. So it's just another way to do development. Um, and, and, you know, some people think it's a little bit higher risk, but it's just another way to do it. How did you float the hard money interest rate uh, until you got the foundation laid? I, I raised for it, right? So I raised more than, than just the 45 down payment. I raised probably an extra two, 300 grand over that. So that held the hard money till the foundation was laid. And and once the foundations in, you refine a construction loan. Most construction loans capitalize the interest. You actually don't need money to float the loan. Got it. Got it. Thanks a lot. No problem. Good luck, Darren. I would actually add one thing on on that. And Fahad seems like he he knows what he's doing there because a lot of my clients, especially in New York City, kind of do it that way. When you're, um, you know, you're you're doing a ground up development, if you go to a lender. Um, you know, yes, hard money is the way to, is one of the better ways to start that if you can stomach that interest only payment. And keep in mind, a lot of times, and you're breaking being, up a little bit. You know, on the leverage point. That, sorry, you know, interest only on the on the leverage point that you're pulling out. Uh, a lot of times, and if you do it right, ends up being roughly the same amount or within a good number um, from a principal and interest loan. You know, at a different at, at, a, at a different LTV that a bank would give. So hard money a lot of times works, and I'm a big supporter of that when the when the timing is right. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind is that when you're ready to go for your permanent loan or for your construction loan, for that matter, if you already have the dirt under if you already own the dirt, um, you can get benefits from that, um, or at least depending on how long you've owned it for, um, what you spent on it, and they'll put that towards most most construction lenders, if not all, will put that. I don't like saying all, but most, a high most, would say would put that towards your cost of capital going in, right? So if they want to see that you have, as, as the expression goes, skin in the game, and you are putting in, especially if you're syndicating it now, right? You're putting in very little dollars of your own pocket, but you already have that land under contract or um, that under ownership. You already own it, and you've done even more so if you've already laid concrete and, and done foundation work and started doing work on it. All of those costs go towards your dollar in. They're not going to really question whether or not that came from syndicated money or, or you know where that came from, as long as you can show that you spent it. So it, a lot of times that works to your benefit um, when then going for the construction loan, which would eventually take out your permanent loan, your your hard money loan. Okay, I, that, to keep I'm, I'm confused as to what point that I would seek to exit the hard money loan. Is that after acquisition of the raw land? And a certain no. amount of infrastructure, or yeah, I, Bear, I'll, I'll go ahead, Ellie. Actually, you know it's better. You're the lender. Well, I mean, listen, it, it it really depends on your project and your timing. But you know, if you're getting the land under contract for uh, under ownership first, and you get that, and then you start the process, 
when you're ready to go for a lender, I mean, you have to have your, your money lined up and your, and your, all your eggs in one basket, right? You have to make sure that you have a plan set out because any, any construction lender is going to be able to tell very quickly if you're a guy who knows what he's talking about, knows what he's doing, or if you're a guy who's just trying to figure this out and piece it together and they don't want to deal with the, you know, the latter, right? They want to know that they know they're dealing with someone who knows what they're doing, or at least has an idea of what they're doing, right? So, you know, you're going to start getting asked questions. And again, this is typically what we do when I, and we do a lot of ground up in New York city, but you know, they're going to ask questions like, who is your contractor? Who is your developer? Who is your architect? You know, um, do you have approved plans? Do you have zoning in place? Do you have all of that? Really, once you get all of those things, all those boxes checked, and you're ready to start going vertical, that's the time to go um, starting looking for lenders. Maybe two, three weeks before that, if you just have a couple things pending, right? You know, if you have approves or, you know, in place, just waiting for your final approvals, maybe you're making some changes. Okay, you can start a little bit before that. But, the tr- but you want to make sure that you have everything because when you're dealing with these construction lenders, it's it's a small world. It depend, I mean, at least in New York City, and again, I'm sure in every marketplace, the, the same thing holds true. Really, we all live in a very small community, and the fact that you know we know each other in terms of you know in our neighborhoods, right? So a lot of these lenders know each other, and they 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 all kind of think the same way. In that, if you're going to start your process and you're going to start your project, and you don't have everything lined up, they're going to be able to figure that out very quickly. Um, and they're just, you know, the next time you go to talk to them, they're just going to remember that the last time you came to them, you didn't have everything lined up and it just, you know, what has really changed between now and then. So I I guess the, the, the long answer to your question is it, you just want to make sure that you have everything lined up that you need lined up and you can answer every single question in order to make sure that they look at you as a serious borrower. I'll give you an example. I just, uh, we just, uh, we're working on a. Uh, $50 million ground um, redevelopment project in Kansas. And the borrower who we were working with, we when I say we, I mean myself and my, my firm, realized very quickly that he, this was a guy who was doing six, seven, eight unit conversions and now wanted to do a 134-unit redevelopment from, a, from an office building, right? Obviously a big step, big jump, needed to make sure that he knew what he was doing. And we he kept saying, well, where are we with quotes? And our response to him for almost two months was we're not there yet because we don't have the answers to the questions that we know lenders are going to ask us. And we need you to give us those answers. And we forced him to go out and get the right answers to those questions because without it, we would have, we as a, as the broker, right. And the one with all the relationships would have just been laughed out of a room, so to speak, virtually, obviously, but laughed out of a room because we were bringing a, a, a borrower to the table that didn't have everything he needed and didn't know everything he needed to know. So I guess my, my, my biggest piece of advice is just make sure that you have all those pieces lined up. And as soon as you do, you're ready to go out to the market. And just that sounds really good. I appreciate it. It cleared it up a lot. But just so I can have it down in my head, having all the pieces ready to go is permitted and, and approved plans along with the appropriate contractor quotes and exactly uh, what's going to happen. So you need to know, first first and foremost, you need to have zoning in place. If that's not in place and it's not zoned properly you're going to have a, a, you know you're going to have a lot of issues but that's probably your biggest issue but as long as you have zoning in place if you have you know every municipality is different new york city won't let you move forward without or most like oh. hello